looking at the uh, trilemma uh, or lunatic liar lord argument, as it's sometimes uh, known as, um, which, I was, as I was saying the other day in my lecture on the resurrection, would be part of the background evidence that I would bring to the resurrection picture. And I was actually uh, flicking through my Getting at Jesus book the other night and thinking, ooh, there's one uh, possible explanation for the uh, resurrection data that I hadn't uh, considered and counted uh, in the book. It's pretty comprehensive, as the title says. Um, but I did think of one, although it would be one that, um, that said Jesus did resurrect, but you could say, as that some of the um, Jews at the time of Jesus said about his exorcisms, he did it by the power of Satan. Maybe it was a satanic, deceptive miracle, right? Which, actually, when you think about it, that of all of the uh, counter explanations to the resurrection you could have, is like almost the closest to the theistic explanation. And so, like, almost the, the next best kind of explanation, you might think, because, you know, it would have a great deal of explanatory scope and, and power and so on, because it would entail that Jesus was raised from the dead. <laughs> but it, that, well, it was a satanic miracle. Uh, but I, thinking about that, uh, apart from, uh, I think, a degree of ad hocness to it, it's also uh, countered or, or um, argued against by the fact that it would basically would involve Jesus... Uh, in taking part in a deceptive conspiracy. Because of course, when he's risen from the dead and meets the disciples, he's still telling them, you know, I, I've been raised from the dead, I'm going to the Father, to, to God. You know, everything is, this is all uh, kosher in terms of fitting in with uh, a Jewish religion. Um, so uh, our background of what we make of Jesus and his claims about himself before and after the resurrection uh, is important evidence, background evidence. And so the lunatic liar lord argument, for example, would be one argument uh, that points uh, against uh, that uh, interpretation of what, what went on at the resurrection. So you see how these things start uh, informing one another. And as we've said uh, on a few occasions now, basically the, the strongest argument is all of the arguments. What we're really doing here in terms of worldview or spirituality comparison is we're weighing up competing worldviews, competing spiritualities, and asking uh, which one is the most attractive in terms of seeming to be the most true, the most good, the most beautiful uh, in a comparative exercise with all of the other uh, possibilities and options. So that's a bit of a preface. So I, I do this in three parts. We'll try and get two into this session here. Let's just introduce you to the, the, the trilemma argument. Summary. By saying and doing things that indicate a divine self-image, and that's divine as Jewish monotheists of the first century understood the term, you know, not a sort of, well, we're all gods, aren't we, kind of new agey sense. Or so, you know, cultural context is important. Doing and saying things that indicate that he had a, a divine self-image. Jesus leaves himself open to charges of insanity if he was sincere uh, about that, or uh, blasphemy if he was not sincere 
about that. But he appears to be both sane and sincere on the basis of all of the other information that we can glean about him. So there's a sort of conundrum or puzzle, a paradox at least there, that should spark our interest and want to kind of solve it. Uh, and this paradox, this puzzle, which you could say is more to be expected on the hypothesis that there's been an incarnation than on the hypothesis of atheism, this paradox lies at the heart of an ancient argument for the divinity of Jesus, uh, which has been summarised in Latin as ut deus ut malus homo, that is, either God or a bad man. The Catholic uh, philosopher Peter Kreft puts it this way, the first premise is that Christ must be either God, as he claims, or a bad man if he isn't who he claims to be. The second premise is that he isn't a bad man. The conclusion is that he is God. A logically valid argument. He either believes his claim to be God or he doesn't. If he does, and the claim's false, then he is intellectually bad because that's a pretty large confusion. Creeft uh, argues that a good measure of your, your, your uh, uh, sanity uh, is uh, the, the gap between your reality and your self-image. Uh, and confusing yourself with God is about as big a gap <laughs> as one can think of. Uh, so if he does and the claim's false, then he's intellectually bad because that's a pretty large confusion. And if he does not believe his claim, and it's false, then he's morally bad, a deceiver and a terrible blasphemer. Uh, Scottish professor John Duncan, uh, 1796 to 1870, uh, wrote this, Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud or he was himself deluded and self-deceived, or he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma. That's the uh, earliest use of trilemma that I've been able to, to track down. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, a uh, Catholic uh, journalist and apologist, uh, wrote this. Uh, it, it were better to rend our robes, to tear our robes with a great cry against blasphemy, or to lay hold of the man as a maniac, rather than to stand stupidly, stupidly debating when a strolling carpenter's apprentice said calmly and almost carelessly, before Abraham I am, was, I am, using that I am name of God, uh, from John 8:58. But also notice this I am phrase is not just in John's Gospel, as sometimes say, uh, people say, it's also used in Mark 1462. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, who we know uh, read uh, Chesterton's uh, The Everlasting Man, that that quote comes from, so was quite possibly an influence upon uh, Lewis. Uh, Lewis uh, famously said, I'm trying here, when presenting this argument, to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. 
That is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say, says Lewis. We looked the other day at that uh, quote from Philip Pullman uh, about uh, accepting Jesus' teaching about the Good Samaritan, but not thinking of Jesus as, as divine. Here's an even more on-the-nail quote from an atheist philosopher of mine called Colin McGinn. And he says, I still admire many of the teachings of Jesus Christ and find his life exemplary of some important moral truths but I long ago rejected the supernatural baggage that accompanies Christian belief. So here is uh, the target audience, if you like, for uh, the way that Lewis uh, was using the trilemma argument. So people often say this sort of thing, and he wants wants to uh, make them realise that there's a sort of incoherence in taking that view of Jesus, to make them unsettled with their view of Jesus, uh, so that they might start thinking of thinking about Jesus in a new way, maybe. Lewis went on, and this is a very famous, oft-quoted quote, quite flowery language. Uh, he says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, uh, he had you know, florid psychosis delusions, or he would be the devil of hell. He'd, he'd be really evil, a liar. You must take your choice. Either this was and so is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. A uh, modern day uh, philosopher who uh, uh, advances a form of this argument, which he calls the mad, bad or God argument, is uh, the philosopher Stephen T. Davis. Uh, in his uh, recent book, Christian Philosophical Theology, he uh, puts the argument out in, uh, in a syllogistic form like this. Jesus claimed, either explicitly or implicitly, to be divine. Jesus was either right or wrong in claiming to be divine. Uh, if Jesus was wrong in claiming to be divine, Jesus was either mad or bad. Jesus was not bad. Jesus was not mad. Therefore, Jesus was not wrong in claiming to be divine. Therefore, Jesus was right in claiming to be divine. Therefore, Jesus was divine. <laughs> okay. uh, really, you could stop at six, couldn't you? But, uh, yeah. Uh, Davis uh, lays out this, uh, the argument, and uh, this is quite a nice quote from him uh, defending the argument. He says, Virtually everyone who reads the Gospels comes away with the conviction that Jesus was a wise and a good man. Uh, Jesus shows none of the character traits usually associated with those who have delusions of grandeur or divinity complexes. Such people are easily recognisable by their egotism, narcissism, inflexibility, predictable behaviour, uh, inability to relate understandingly and lovingly to others. 
none of which easily applies to the Jesus that we seem to meet within the historical record. We live in an age when scholars confidently make all sorts of bizarre claims about the historical Jesus. But few scripture scholars of any theological stripe seriously entertain the possibility that Jesus was either a lunatic or a liar. Any uh, brief uh, questions or clarifications on uh, laying out the argument and the, the history of the, the argument? Yeah. If, like, if someone said that Jesus is mad, is that like a good enough reason to not follow his example? Right. So if, if you concluded that Jesus was mad, would that be a good enough reason to not follow his example? Yeah. Yeah, but the argument is aimed not at convincing people to follow Jesus' example, but to believe that he was correct when he claimed to be divine. Um, so, uh, uh, choosing to, to think of him as mad is an alternative to thinking that he was correct when he claimed to be divine. It's saying he, he claimed to be divine, but he was wrong about that. And that means I've got to think of him as a madman. But that, oh, you're right, that wouldn't necessarily mean thinking that there was nothing to be learnt from his example or, or way he lived his life or, or, or something. It, the, the goodness of the way he lived his life and so on is brought in the, to the argument as a reason against thinking that Jesus was a bad man who claimed to be divine but believed that he wasn't. What's the difference between mad and bad? So uh, Jesus claims to be divine mm -hmm. so, uh, but does he really genuinely think he is divine? So when Jesus says I'm, you know, I'm divine basically does Jesus think he's telling the truth or does he think he's lying? Does he think I'm deceiving these people into following me because now they all think I'm divine. <laughs> you know, that's bad because he's, he's, he's deliberately deceiving people and blaspheming in Jewish terms and so on because even though he doesn't think he is divine he's making that claim anyway. And that's bad. On the other hand, you could say he's making that claim and he really believes it, but he's wrong. He's just mistaken. He's deluded about who he is. So he's sincere, you know, he's not trying to deceive anyone, but if you think he's wrong and he's not divine, then he is sincerely deluded. He's, he's mad. Okay. Uh, and those, the argument claims, seem to be the, the two alternative ways of looking at Jesus that don't involve saying he was divine. <laughs> he was right. He, he not only claimed to be divine, but he was right when he made that claim. So the argument is saying that the, the cost, as it were, the, the price tag attached to rejecting the conclusion that Jesus was divine uh, 
is to is to choose to either say that he was mad or that he was bad. So 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 the point is either Jesus is right or he's wrong about his being divine. Right? Mm-hmm. If he if he's not right, if he's wrong, there's two options. That's the point. Is he does he know he is wrong? Or does he not know it? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so you, you try to sort out what are the possibilities. And when you look at those seriously, they are very hard to, to justify. He's either a mad person, he's maniac, or that he is a bad person. Very, very few scholars even, even try that. Because Jesus seemed to be the kind of model for sanity or, or for people's personal integrity. So very few really go there. And that's the point of the argument. Mm-hmm. You cannot just say Jesus was a good person. Either he was wrong about his being divine, then you need to explain which one is it. Is it the mad or bad? Mm-hmm. Right. So he's forcing us to do one or three here, and you get the problem with either one. If he's God, you get the problem, well, you need to repent and trust him. <laughs> right. The other one, you need to explain how can he be, be mad. I am saying compare yourself. If he's a bad person, am I a good person compared to him? You, you, yeah. Try that one. The kind of the Yeah. And the other thing was, uh, they started with Stephen. Yeah. Jesus is not bad, Jesus is not bad. Yeah. Uh, but, um, like, well, what are the evidence, or how will you prove right. that he's not bad or mad? That's, that's right. So this is, this is laying out, showing that the argument is logical. And this is why I then turned uh, to uh, some of the reasoning that he gives for justifying those premises. Um, so for example, uh, to claim that Jesus was mad, um, you would expect Jesus to show signs of uh, so-called, uh, you know, there are, it's a well-known psychological condition where people get delusions of divinity and so on, um, which is characterised by character traits like egotism, narcissism, inflexibility, inability to love other people, and so on. And the the portrait of Jesus that we seem to get from the available historical data, you know, even many atheists would admit is saying, just doesn't seem to, to fit with that description of character that you'd expect someone to have if they were sincerely deluded, had delusions of grandeur and so on. Um, so there's it, it, it's something difficult to, to put together there. Um, so yeah, it, but that's, 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 that's key. I mean, it depends upon looking at what the available historical evidence is for was Jesus a good person who's, you know, was he the sort of person that you think is likely to have tried to con and deceive people? Uh, if he was trying to deceive people uh, into worshipping him as God, very strange thing to do in that socio-religious culture anyway, um, what what was he trying to get out of it? Um, getting himself crucified, which was what he actually got out of it. Um, 
why, as we'll see later, why did he really, you know, put his head uh, on the block, as it were, in his trial, when he knew his life was on the line, rather than backing off the claims to divinity, he kind of doubled down on those claims. But if he was only in it for selfish reasons as a sort of con artist or something, that just doesn't seem to fit with what his actual actions in the context and so on. Again, yeah. Yeah, uh, I agree with the whole argument actually, but I was just thinking, uh, or as a comment, isn't there, wasn't there a lot of people claiming to be Messiah, like the, the yes. expectation of the Messiah was very big? Yeah, that's right. So there were numerous uh, people around that time claiming to be Messiah, but Jesus was the only one who claimed to be divine. Mm. So yeah, it's it's it, uh, that's the the real uh, key difference there, um, I think. So so. Good dominate. To to be. Okay, yeah. Yahweh. But the creator of the world. It's not just a divine person; it's just slightly more divine than human beings. Jews were, you were either God who created the universe or you were created part of the universe of human beings. Am I the creator or am I a created creature? So, and so if you... <laughs> no, no, they didn't. Jesus was the only Then he didn't expect the divine Messiah, Jews. Mm. He would have an earthly king coming here to free Israel. He would reign forever. It was a little hard to, well, maybe live forever in the, in the new kingdom anyway, but the, the expectation of, of divine divinity, they didn't expect, even if there are some signs in the Old Testament about it, like Psalm yeah. 10 and so on. They didn't read it that way, particularly under the pressure of the Roman occupation at the time. The Old Testament texts about the Messiah uh, were read in terms of that pressure of occupation, I think. So a lot of the texts about the the king in the line of David who will come and destroy God's enemies and will get rid of evil and uh, release the the children of God from their bondage and so on. Um, that was all. Yeah, yeah, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to kick Roman butt. You know, that was what they were kind of principally focusing on. Whereas Jesus pointed to a lot of the Old Testament texts about the Messiah is going to come and suffer and die and you know Peter drawing Jesus aside having said well basically you're the son of God you're the Messiah uh, and then Jesus says right you're absolutely right Peter so now I'm going to go to Jerusalem and be killed and it's like no Jesus you've got it wrong you know because he's thinking yes the Messiah is going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to kill the Romans <laughs> right uh, but Jesus is saying no I'm going to suffer and then when I come back in the last judgment on God's throne, hang on a minute, who does he think he is? <laughs> Not only Messiah, but the divine, the son of man, the divine figure from Daniel, uh, then I will enact judgment upon all God's enemies and so on in the last judgment. Uh, so Jesus had a different reading of the, the Old Testament text than the people of his day did. So you, even for the disciples this was very hard to understand and to accept. Yeah. And they didn't until after the resurrection. They were forced yeah. to it for the yeah. resurrection. 
So, so um, being a messiah, you don't need to be designed divine. Mm. And many messiahs came up 10 to 15 during mm. kind of the, the, the centuries around Jesus, and all of them were killed by the Romans, so killed. Yeah. And um, the groups, yeah. they, they disappeared. Mm. But one group who believed in one messiah who was killed continued. That's a Christian group. And how can you believe in a dead messiah? It has to be something that happened historically. Mm -hmm. so the continuation of the Christian movement is itself quite a strong argument as well. Divine with a, with a capital D. So Richard Dawkins, for example, will say the, the evidence that Jesus claimed any sort of divine status is minimal. Um, although he acts as if minimal is also a synonym for non-existent yeah. and doesn't actually tell you what evidence he thinks there is or, you know, he's like, yeah. uh, So we can look at Jesus' self-understanding, his self-image, we can look both at direct and indirect evidence. The indirect evidence would be what others believed about Jesus. What did the people closest to Jesus believe about him? And is it plausible that they would form a picture of Jesus completely at odds with Jesus' own self-image? And particularly, if they form a picture of Jesus as, as claiming divinity, could they have done that if Jesus himself had done nothing to encourage them to have that view of him, particularly remembering that the, the social religious context of Jesus being a monotheistic Jewish rabbi, right? Uh, so sometimes people put forward this idea of a so-called evolutionary Christology. Uh, so atheist John Loftus here claims that Christians, Christians developed a gradually developed a higher, more glorified view of Jesus in a process of gradual deification, of taking him from just being viewed as a human to viewing him as, as fully divine in a process that took at least 70 years. Uh, so in, sort of just into the uh, end of the first, beginning of the second century before anyone really believed that Jesus was divine. Uh, in other words, the belief that Jesus was divine emerged after the eyewitness generation. So that it then becomes more plausible to say uh, that, uh, of course, you know, the people who knew him best didn't think of him as divine, but later on people gradually evolved this view of Jesus as being divine. But if we look again back to our chart of the New Testament letters from the first century, crucifixion at 33 AD, the, the, what I'm going to call the loftus line of but people started thinking of Jesus as divine around here. Uh, the New Testament letters are all before that, of course. Uh, here we have uh, Jesus called uh, our great God and Saviour, applied to Jesus in the letter of Titus 2.13. Uh, in Colossians 2.9, uh, Paul says, The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in Christ. He's referring to in context there. Uh, in the letter of James, which might well be the earliest letter in the New Testament. Uh, it could well date to as early as 45 to 49 AD, within two decades of, of the cross. 
Uh, certainly very good evidence that it was pre-60-ish. Uh, the letter of James has a so-called high, a divine view of Jesus. Uh, James refers to the Lord Jesus Christ and describes his readers as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And James talks about uh, non-Christians hurling abuse at Christians as the ones who are blaspheming the noble, the good, the, the kalos, the attractive good name of him to whom you belong in James 2.7. Now I need to unpack a little bit why those express a high, a divine view of Jesus. So calling Jesus Lord, which James does twice in the letter, in the light of the, the Jewish uh, creed or Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, uh, from Deuteronomy. By calling Jesus Lord, Kyrios in the Greek, early Christians uh, were identifying the risen and ascended Jesus with the Lord of the Old Testament. Um, you can see that, for example, from Paul's words that, that both echo and adapt that Jewish creed from Deuteronomy in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, where he says, There is one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. Josephus, the Jewish historian, reports that first century Jews refused to address the Roman emperor as Kyrios, as Lord, because they believed the term should only be applied to Yahweh. It was the, the term that they used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament uh, for, for, for Yahweh, Lord, Kyrios. Uh, so as uh, Dean L. Overman puts it, when the early church proclaimed that Jesus is Lord, that was like the main proclamation, uh, what do you believe as Christians? Jesus is Lord. Uh, it was using Kyrios in the most exalted uh, sense. And then we also have this phrase, this very interesting phrase from James 2.7 about the ones who are blaspheming the noble name to whom you belong. Now, although the, the, the Greek term uh, blasphemy uh, can mean speech that just speaks evil about someone or reviles non-divine persons, so I could, blas I could blasphemy uh, you, I call you bad names and, and so on. Uh, but the context here, I think, surely favours taking the term as a reference to blaspheming in the strongest sense of the term. Uh, to blaspheme God and indeed that's how most of the major English translations at least understand, clearly understand uh, the term uh, now you need to recall that Christians originally didn't call themselves Christians uh, they thought of themselves as and described themselves as followers of the way I'm a follower of the way uh, various references that you can look up. The use of, of the word Christian began as outsider language, uh, which you can see in Acts and in the Roman historian uh, Tacitus as well talks about this. You know, this comes from Jesus is saying, you know, I am the way, the truth and the life. So I, I follow the way. Uh, the Greek word... Breaking it just a minute. Okay. Uh, Christianos 
basically uh, meaning anointed one plus belonging to belonging to the Messiah, slave of the Messiah. Um, Christians are those who are slaves of or, or called on by the name of the Christ, where Christ is the noble name of him, that's Jesus, to whom Christians belong. You, you Messiah slaves. And James is taking this and saying, yeah, we are owned by the name of Christ. Uh, but also, James 2.7 is is echoing Old Testament passages that speak of God's prophets or of Israel as being called upon, owned by God's name. References there for you to look up. Uh, so this expression used in the Old Testament about what is the property, becomes the property of God, is the property of the one whose name is called over something or someone. And it's particularly said of Israel that the name of God was called upon them. So talk of blaspheming the, the, the noble good name of him to whom you belong is implicitly substituting Christ, whom he calls the Lord Jesus Christ, for God's name that owns God's people in the Old Testament. And you can see this also from the omission of the actual omission of the actual noble name. He just says the noble name, doesn't say the name. Well, that's like Jews not saying the name of Yahweh. They would substitute or not, not say the name directly. Uh, and also in the Old Testament we see from several Psalms <coughs> saying that God's name is good. Your name, O, o Lord, is good. And in the Hebrew there, the, the, the word being translated as good, taub, it means kind of pleasant, agreeable good. Well in the Greek of the letter of James, the term that's being translated good or noble uh, is, is not uh, agathos, which means kind of practically good or morally good. It's kalos, which in the Greek is kind of the beautiful good, the attractive, pleasant good. Right? Uh, so I think this is James translating into Greek this uh, Old Testament use of the name of God being good, attractive, and saying uh, those non-Christians are blaspheming the, the attractive Old Testament name of him that's called over you, like the, the Israel's called over the by the name of God, and now, yes, we are those who, yes, we do, as they are, you know, saying, we are the ones who are slaves of Christ. Let's kind of take that language and, and redeem it for our own usage. So that is very interesting to, to see. Uh, how much, to, where are we? I, I think we should have a break now. Yeah, that's um, fine. Uh, so you can follow up these uh, details of the uh, arguments about the dating and authorship of uh, James uh, through the resources provided. But to summarise, I would say that uh, this chart shows there's a bar after uh, the James bar at the top there that shows the plausible dating range for the epistle, ranging from about as early as 45 to maybe as late as 60. And basically there's... Uh, uh, less evidence the closer to 88 to earlier you go 
so, but I, still, I think evidence that points to, on balance, it being as early as 45. Um, which is, of course, on any of those datings, two to three decades after the crucifixion and a long time before our loftiest uh, line of evolutionary Christology, so to say. So, did you explain the Loftus line? Yes, we did earlier, yes. Uh, when John Loftus is saying people st first started thinking of Jesus as divine. John Loftus is an atheist yeah. who claims that divine started after Hunter. Yeah. But he showed now that. That's not right. Lots of ways one can show that. Here's one. Uh, so I think the epistle of James demonstrates belief in the divinity of Jesus, and this is key, on the part of Jewish Christians mm -hmm. within two to three decades of his shameful crucifixion, which is astonishing and takes some explaining. And also would argue that this evidence is plausibly from James, the brother of Jesus. Uh, he was known to have been sceptical about the claims that Jesus was making prior to the crucifixion. Have a look at John 7.5. So as the agnostic philosopher John O'Hare says, we should remember that Jesus' first followers were pious Jews to whom the claims being made, laying claim to divinity, uh, uh, would have seemed blasphemous had they not been given a strong reason to believe them. And where better than from Jesus himself? That's the most sort of straightforward, simplest, most obvious explanation as to why these first-generation Jewish followers of Jesus were talking about him as if he's on a par with God, is that they had got this idea from Jesus himself. So that's a sort of indirect uh, argument for saying that Jesus had a divine self-image. And we can touch uh, briefly on the, the more direct uh, evidence in Jesus' uh, explicit and implicit claims about himself. This would also include things that he, he did. Uh, this, uh, just a nice illustration of this uh, from a house church in the third century. That's a nice illustration of this story from Mark's Gospel about Jesus uh, forgiving uh, the paralyzed man. Uh, why does this fellow talk like that, say the bystanders? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive but God himself? Because uh, this guy's, uh, Jesus, you know, says, your, your sins are forgiven. I'm kind of assuring you on my own authority that your sins are forgiven. And it's not like this guy has harmed Jesus and he's saying, I forgive you. Uh, he's just saying, your sins are forgiven. Okay? On my authority, yeah. And they all interpret this. Uh, why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. He's kind of claiming to stand in God's shoes. Who can forgive sins like that but God alone? Or just, I mean, here's a couple of examples from Matthew's Gospel. Jesus' favourite self-designation was this phrase about the Son of Man. The Son of Man is master even of the Sabbath. Now, who who is like in charge of the Sabbath, who instituted the Sabbath within Jewish society. Uh, going back to your Old Testaments, uh, it's God. 
But here Jesus referring to himself using this phrase, the Son of Man. The Son of Man is master even of the Sabbath. The Son of Man will send out his angels. Not the Son of Man will send out God's angels. Right? The Son of Man will send out his angels. And they will uproot from the kingdom everything that is spoiling it. But who can own angels? You know, what, what is there above the angelic realm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what does the term actually Excellent question. You need to go back to Daniel chapter 7. <laughs> uh, where the prophet Daniel, one of the visions of the prophet Daniel, and it goes like this, is in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, the clouds of heaven, this is Jewish imagery for the glory of God. Uh, he approached the Ancient of Days, God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus takes this uh, image of the figure of the Son of Man and says, I am the Son of Man. At Jesus' trial, I mentioned earlier about putting his, his head on the block, as it were, the trial's not going too well, and then the, the high priest asks him, Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? The, the Son of the Blessed One? Like, are you the, the Messiah? I am said Jesus. And you will see, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Okay? The high priest tore his clothes. Was this because he suddenly had a fashion uh, anxiety moment? Or? No, no, no. Oh, what am I wearing? This is <laughs> this is a typical cultural expression of grief. Of that's terrible. You're, you know, this is blasphemy. We must show our, our horror and our repudiation of this blasphemy. Tearing his clothes, he says, "Why do we need any more witnesses?" He asked to you know the rest of the. The, the folks there putting Jesus on trial. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. Because he's committed blasphemy. He's just said to the court that's trying him, well, I'm going to try you by coming on God's judgment throne in the glory of heaven. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and again, you know, if Jesus was a con artist lying to try and get people to worship him for the, for the benefits or whatever. This, this just isn't the sort of thing that one would do. So let's uh, come to part three, engaging with what the new atheists say about the trilemma argument. First of all, um, some new atheists admit that Jesus did think that he was divine. So Christopher Hitchens acknowledged that Jesus reportedly believed himself, at least some of the time, to be God or the Son of God. 
Lawrence Krauss states that Jesus had delusions of being God. So notice he's saying, yes, he claimed to be God, but that was a delusion. Krauss is picking the mad option. But many new atheists will say that Jesus wasn't either a lunatic or a liar. So Sam Harris uh, records realising that Jesus, the Buddha, Lao Tzu and the other saints and sages of history had not all been epileptics and schizophrenics or frauds. Harris bears witness to Jesus' goodness and wisdom by grouping him together with the other saints and sages of history. Moreover, he, he repudiates any dismissal of those saints and sages, including Jesus, as epileptics, schizophrenics, mad people, or frauds, bad. Uh, on the one hand, Richard Dawkins admits uh, there is no evidence Jesus was barking mad. On the other hand, he says we know enough to conclude that Jesus, quote, was a great moral teacher. Dawkins uh, says, when you read some of uh, C.S. Lewis's arguments, they are just pathetic. <laughs> Things like, well, Jesus claimed to be the son of God, so either Jesus was mad or bad, or he really was the son of God. It did not seem to occur to Lewis that Jesus could simply be mistaken. Sincerely and honestly mistaken, but not loony, you know. I mean... What a pathetic argument. So saying this is, this is a false uh, trilemma. There's another option that we haven't included, and that's to say, yeah, Jesus was wrong about claiming to be divine, but he wasn't mad. He was just making an honest mistake. Yeah. <laughs> that, every, every audience that I've presented that, that material to has had exactly the same reaction. <laughs> Dawkins' suggestion that Jesus was just honestly mistaken about his divinity, I think, constitutes a backhanded compliment to the strength of the trilemma argument. As Stephen T. Davis again puts it, it is not easy to see how any sane religious first century Jew could sincerely but mistakenly hold the belief, I am divine. <laughs> uh, and so that is the, the sort of the, the, the puzzle that we get from the data, uh, some of the arguments uh, about establishing uh, the, the basis of the argument that, that Jesus laid claim to, to divinity in Jewish terms uh, directly uh, and indirectly through things he said, things he did. Uh, that also we have the evidence of his closest, uh, earliest followers coming to believe that Jesus was uh, divine, bundled up in their concept of God now, very early on, not this long sort of idea of an evolutionary Christology where the Jewish followers of Jesus just thought of him as a prophet, like Dan Brown says in the Da Vinci Code, and then as Christianity comes out into the Greco-Roman world with their ideas of gods and demigods and Zeus and Hercules, who's sort of, this, you know, uh, offspring of Zeus and a human woman and so semi-divine and so on we get this gradual divinization of Jesus so like that's just incompatible with the historical data 
but given that Jesus had this divine self-image, how do we um, understand that also in light of the evidence that we have that even many atheists willingly admit that seems to show that Jesus was a, a, a very good person, uh, a, a moral person, sincere in his beliefs and so on, not insincere, uh, not conning people. Um, why would he put his life on the line for, for getting nothing out of it, for a con, uh, and so on? How do we solve that conundrum? Uh, and the Christian way of solving it is to say that, well, Jesus was actually right about that. He, he was divine. That would solve the conundrum. There are other options. One can pay the price tag, as it were, of saying, like Krauss did, he was deluded, he was a madman. But you see that there is a price tag associated with that. There's a difficulty squaring that idea of Jesus with some of our other information about him. Or you could try and say, yeah, he was just a con artist. And an exorcist on the make, as Christopher Hitchens once said. Um, yeah, he did a great job of, of being an exorcist on, on the make, didn't he? You know, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head until the Jewish authorities provide an empty tomb for him to put it in. You know, that's, yeah, that's the real perks and benefits of the, <laughs> of the con artist game. Um, so that's, uh, that's the argument. Uh, I think it's uh, you, you, logically uh, valid as an argument. And as you were asking the questions, it's clearly going to depend upon what is the evidence that he, that he really had this divine self-image and what's the rest of the evidence about his character? Uh, does that easily fit with uh, the ways of avoiding saying that he was right about that, that self-image? Given that those, the only sort of coherent, as it were, ways of avoiding that, that conclusion are to either say that he was mad or that he was bad. Uh, and trying to say with Richard Dawkins, well, you know, he wasn't mad and he wasn't bad. He was just sincerely, honestly mistaken about just, like, there doesn't seem to be another plausible option on the table. Which of the three options in the trilemma is the most plausible? Now, I don't think that this is an argument that uh, in and of itself is probably going to convince many people that Jesus was the Son of God and was divine. But as I argue in my um, book, Understanding Jesus, where, where I give a sort of five different arguments for the Christian understanding of Jesus, what an argument can do, even if, it doesn't, even if you don't think it's strong enough to convince you of a position, is it can weaken your scepticism about that position. So you might look at the trilemma argument as a non-Christian, and you might say, well, I, I don't think that argument is strong enough, has enough evidence for it or whatever, to convince me that Jesus was divine. But I can see that that argument has some weight to it. Just not enough to tip the scales over, over into belief for me. But it has some weight. So now, next time you meet an, another different argument for the Christian view of Jesus, you approach that second argument, say the resurrection. 
a bit less sceptical than you were previously. And this is what happens in a cumulative case argument. By the time you've looked at the lunatic liar lord argument and Jesus' fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy and his own correct prophecies about the future and the resurrection argument and you know, maybe at some stage in that accumulation of, of evidence as long as you think each argument has some weight in and of itself even if none of them on their own are enough to convince you the whole package might well be enough to convince you and actually as I was saying earlier I think say something like the resurrection argument becomes most strong, most plausible in the context of things like the data involved in the lunatic liar lord argument, Jesus' self-image and, and, and so on. Yeah. There we go. So any comments um, or questions? Yeah? But okay. is there any, uh, like, do we believe that like, Muhammad or Buddha was actually real people? Do we have books about the historical Buddha or any historical... That's Muhammad? a very good question. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, could you, for example, could you mount a similar argument yeah. that Muhammad must have been a genuine prophet of God? Mm. Yeah. Either yeah. was mad. Or, or was he bad? Or he was right? Yeah. So the, question, the questions would be, um, how good is the evidence that there really was a Muhammad mm -hmm. who really did claim to be a prophet of God, and so on? What is the evidence we have about his character and actions? And how easy or difficult does that evidence make it to say, okay, he claimed to be a prophet, but he was in it for what he could get out of it? Or he had ulterior motives, but he was, you know, he was quite a bad guy. Or he was sort of, he was deluded about that. Um, now the delusion involved would be a smaller one, not as stark, because he's not claiming to be divine. <laughs> yeah, he's just claiming, you know, I think I've got some messages from God. Um, so that is a, 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 an easier mistake, as it were, to make. Yeah, it could be honestly yeah. mistaken. So it's more it may be more plausible to say he was honestly mistaken than to say that Jesus was honestly mistaken. Because Jesus is making a much bigger claim, which if, a claim which, if wrong, is a much bigger gap between reality and self-image. Yeah? So those are the kind of things that you would have to weigh up, and then you would have to weigh up the relative. If, if you think, you know, concluding that Muhammad is a prophet is, you know, doesn't cohere with thinking that Jesus was the, the divine son of God, if those two don't fit together, they, they, they contradict each other, because Muhammad says Jesus was not divine, right? He didn't even die on a cross. He didn't even die on a cross, you know, okay? one would also have to weigh up the relative strength of the two arguments and you might say well the 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 mad bad or, or prophet argument from muhammad has some strength to it maybe but not as much strength as the arguments for thinking that christianity is true that's fine 
you don't have to think there's, there's no reasons for believing alternative viewpoints. And it, you know, anyone who's ever watched a crime drama knows that you can have what appears to be some evidence for a conclusion that's wrong, that turns out to be wrong. There is evidence. It is evidence for thinking that the butler was the murderer. And then you get on later on in, in the TV series, you're, oh, well, that was a red herring. That was just the director misdirecting us and it was the housekeeper all along, you know, or wh whatever. But, you know, maybe some character has noticed something suspicious that, that was, in a sense, evidence against the, uh, the innocence of the butler. But later on you find, you know, that was, there was other things that explained it, even though it was a bit, you know, <laughs> uh, a bit suspicious uh, in and of itself. Hmm. Uh, so, 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 so there are different questions. Yeah. One, one question is, are they historical persons? that could have mm. been popularized. So it's yeah. kind of harder to get the historical material, but I think historians agree pre probably existed, uh, and there are some of the stories about Muhammad that are probable. So, so, so well, I'll jump in on that, because that, that said, I have recently <laughs> been reading a number of scholars who are beginning to question, yeah. actually, whether there is good historical evidence okay. for the existence of yeah. Muhammad in the historical period that's portrayed, Buddha. yeah, of Muhammad. Ah, Buddha, yeah. yes, that's, yeah. Was on okay, sorry, I misheard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, just, just finish Buddha. <laughs> yep. No, if, I mean, <laughs> no. one, one question is, did he exist? Mm. That doesn't mean his message is true, right? The first thing is, did he exist? And the second is, can we trust his character? Mm -hmm. So you need, you need his character to be honest. And, and I think in terms of Buddha, well, probably existed. That's, I don't know much about historical stuff. And I, I would generally kind of be want to say well, he was probably genuine person with integrity. Mm -hmm. But his philosophical system is messed up, but that was as good as he could get it, because he didn't have the revelation from God, but he, he based it on natural revelation and got things really wrong. Now, Muhammad is a different character, and now uh, historians are starting to do the same criticism on Muhammad as they did on the Bible, mm. 50 years ago, right? Did it really exist? And uh, you met Jay Smith at, uh, at the study tour, and he, he, has, he knows that all this critical material really doubts that the Quran really was produced by Muhammad. Um, and uh, question many like, like Mecca probably didn't exist when, when Muhammad lived. And, and uh, it's a later kind of construction. But that are really, really, really very radical theories about Muhammad. But still, if, even if it existed, even if the Quran is correct the, uh, uh, about the personal details, you need to ask the question, well, can we trust it? Yeah. And then you have the hadith, all the stories about Muhammad that is kind of traced back to him. And that, that, that are the stories that the Muslims think are the true ones, not all the false ones, because there are many more. But several hundred thousand stories about it. And if you read them, you're going to be shocked if you're Muslim. There's so much mess in his personal life with the women, with, with, with violence, with thinking he was possessed with a demon. And, and, and uh, so, so looking at the character is kind of first to look at it, did he exist? And then 
you trust him as a character, and then, well, he's already proved that his message is true. They're all three different things. And you can look at Jesus, and you, you have good arguments for all of them. Mm -hmm. Because I was just Googling, I'm trying to find anything on the historical Buddha or the historical mm -hmm. And there is no books about it. Or but there probably is. But, yeah. but there's there fewer. Is, there is a very good uh, Christian apologist who compares uh, Jesus and Confucius, the, 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 the Chinese philosopher, okay. looking at the, at the sources mm -hmm. and, and being critical but balanced, and then comparing the Gospels and showing how much better they are. Yeah. So he, he's, he's, he's been a missionary to China, mm -hmm. so he knows the material and historical stuff, and that is a very, mm -hmm. very good book for apologetics as well. Mm -hmm. So, but, but being a historical person doesn't mean that it's true. No. You need to ask some more questions. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. um, is it, is it uh, right, like what I heard about, that um, Islam came out from like Abraham's first child? It, 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 you know Ishmael? Yeah. And then Abraham's first son yeah. was called Ishmael. Yes. And they they trace their roots, and I think also the Jews would normally say mm -hmm. that that Arab groups and the Arab didn't exist at the time of the Old Testament, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they could trace their line back to Ishmael. I think I think they do. Yeah. But, but it, it, it's a part of their identity. So, that's so they relate themselves to Abraham, but it could, it could be kind of a myth in terms of genealogy. I'm not, not sure, but that's what they say. And that's also what the Jews believe. I think yeah. that, that, that Arabs are basically in the line from mm. Ishmael and not from the true song. Because I heard like speeches I, that if, if they didn't like, do a mistake, well, that's a that's a difference between a, a sort of ethnicity or, or people group, yeah, and a religious idea. So, whether or not there was a, 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 a Muhammad, there was, it seems to have been someone invented the the idea of this Quranic uh, revelation around uh, several hundred years after. Um, Christianity came into the world, or was it 600, 800s AD, birth of, uh, of, of Islam? 600, uh, 600. The, 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 the nominal, yeah, yeah. the revelations and 30s to Medina, 30s. Uh, and, then, and then you get these resource, uh, sources. Yeah, and um, they're quite a few hundred years later, so the, the biographical sources about Muhammad, even if there was one, are a lot later after the event than yeah. in uh, the Christian case, uh, yeah. for example, where we have first, you know, first century co contemporaneous in that sense sources. Um, mm. But even if you look at the, the Quran, and you, you will find similarities with Old Testament mm. stories, but also differences, and it, it just reads like someone has half remembered some Old Testament stories <laughs> and retold them yeah. uh, with differences. And put them in the place, yeah. wrong place geographically and thinking that, you know, the Trinity is God, Mary and Jesus. 
So, yeah. So it's like, sort of heard of an idea, but get it, get, gets it wrong in terms of the historical detail of passing on these stories from Judaism, from Christianity. Uh, uh, sort of, it would seem, in the service of promoting belief in, in one God, maybe in a way that could unite uh, different warring tribes with different sort of polytheistic beliefs, like someone thinking, if we had you know, a belief in a one God, that would bring unity, just in the way that Constantine used Christianity to become the state religion of the Holy Roman Empire, to bring unity to this very diverse empire. And someone thinking, if we had the unity of this sort of Judeo-Christian belief in one God, we could have unity and maybe one could argue and political power and, and so on and, and so they, forth. But and they yeah, very, very well. But, uh, yeah, you know. So, I mean, what the, what the Muslims will say is, if you point out to these you know, contradictions between the, uh, the earlier sources about the Jewish and Christian religions and what's in the Quran, so they'll say, oh, well, since the Quran is the perfect revealed word of God and there's a contradiction between it and what your historical sources say, your historical sources must have been corrupted. Mm, yeah. You know, people have changed the original revealed by God, because the original revealed by God would agree with the Quran. And you say, what's the historical evidence that the text of the, you know, of, of, of the New Testament has been changed? And I say, there is, well, there isn't any, but it must have been, because we know that, the, so, yeah. So, so this is the way many secular people, and even probably many Christians perceive the Christian faith. We just believe the Bible is true. Yeah. We reject any contrary evidence. Just, just doubly believe this. While Christians should be open to criticism. I love the years of criticism of the Bible. We need to take the questions seriously. And now we have been kind of educated by atheism and the critique. And, and, and mm. we see actually the case yeah. for the Bible yeah. of Jesus is even yeah. stronger than after this criticism. Yeah. While of these <coughs> it's an absolute disaster. In a couple of decades now, yeah. if the if the material comes out, research on, on Muhammad comes out, it's gonna be a disaster for any thinking Muslim. So so it's it's uh, we need to encourage people, invite them to examine critically the Bible. And then, of course, their own stuff as well. Um, to be thinking, to be responsible, is, is also to, to take up the critical questions. And that's what we've been doing here. Uh, you bring in uh, <laughs> as well, or? Yeah, I'm just. Um, yeah, I look at the, the Islamic critique of the the resurrection because they say Jesus didn't wasn't crucified, didn't die yeah. at least. But I've just got a quote here from the scholar Keith E. Small, who's done textual criticism, uh, like was done on the Bible, has applied those textual critical techniques now to the Quran, and he's saying that the Quranic text that we have today, because the the Muslims say what well, the Quran is the, the perfect revealed word for word. Unchanged. Word unchanged, eternal word of God, right? But the Keith Small says, um, "What has been preserved and transmitted for the Quran is a text, a form of the text 
that was chosen from amidst a group of others and was then edited and canonized at the expense of those other texts and has been improved upon in order to make it conform to a desired ideal. What cannot be determined are the what we call the autographs, the original, what was first written, the autographic text forms of what the earliest Muslims considered to be the full um, canon or corpus of revelations given through Muhammad left at his death for the uh, authoritative text forms of his disciples, his companions. Instead, a strongly edited version of one form of the text has been preserved and transmitted, made between 20 and 100 years after Muhammad's purported death. Uh, so that the, the, the textual criticism stuff that's coming out now on, on the Quran is like, you know, in direct contradiction to at least popular uh, Muslim belief about what we, they have uh, in, the, in the Quran, uh, just in terms of applying the same uh, sort of historical criteria to the Quran as, as 19th century German liberalism started doing with, with, with the Bible. Yeah. And, and one of the foremost textual critics, textual criticism is looking at all the manuscripts, handwritten mm. material at the ancient part of the Bible, right? from papyrus to bigger document, all the way back. And by examining scientifically, we try to establish the most original world, right? And, and one of the foremost textual critics living today, he is a very eager atheist. Bartholomew. And he's using anything he can to attack kind of the Christian faith. He used to be Christian himself, fundamentalist Christian. And, and uh, when he discovered there are some possible mistranslation or mistransfer, some, some mistakes in our present Bible compared to the original, his whole idea of the perfect Bible broke down. And that he now used everything he can to pull down the whole stuff. But, but if you read his book, the, the uh, uh, critiquing the Bible, you know, he is the best person to find the word in the text. Bottom. And you read the book, yes, yes, hey, sit there. Bottom, And it's very interesting because if you read his book, his examples are known by all of us as Bible scholars, and there are no real problems. So he tried to make a big stuff mm. out of some small bits and pieces and construct them as if we, well, how can we know what was there? But if you ask him as a scholar, can we really know what was in the original documents? Oh, yes, he says. <laughs> of course we can. Every scholar agrees. 99% of the New Testament, we know for certain. There are some small stuff that we still discuss, but the spin of the book mm. is mm. we can't know anything. As a scholar, he says, well, we have the original, almost the full. So, so uh, it's interesting that even him uh, finding the worst cases, he can't do the argument against the Bible, uh, the transmission of the Bible. Mm. Yeah? I was just wondering, it's a little bit different, but uh, you know Olaf Mahalia? Yep. When he came to Norway. St. Olaf, mm. the Norwegian. And he preached in the Norway, 
Like, do you, because I never hear that much about like when people preach and stuff, mm-hmm. and it was kind of important. And when he died and stuff, mm-hmm. he said that uh, everything could be like his beard or nails they grew, mm-hmm. and that made him a saint. I mean, how much do we think that's a lie? No, people never talk mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you, there's, there's going to be some material, and there's going to be an uh, anniversary now in, mm-hmm. in 2013. Yeah. With his death, you know, and that was kind of foundation of Christianity in Norway. Uh, is there any anniversary earlier than that as well? I'm not quite sure, but I think it's kind of going to be a big one. And then there's going to be a big discussion on Christianity in Norway, how it was brought in, mm-hmm. partly by violence, but a lot more by mission and convincing yeah. and seeing the difference of lives. So you, you have a lot of myths in our school books, the school books about the violent Christian kings forcing Christianity on them. Which is just part of the story. So it's a lot wider than that. So when, when the, uh, it started a lot earlier than King Olaf, the, the Christian faith coming into the country. Yeah, you know, you know, they, they believe in a lot of legends, medieval legends. So in, in Snova, which is one of the major sources for this, he is some centuries after, he mm. writes about these, and he also writes the story, the legend. And they believe them at that point. We are skeptical about it, but they are not skeptical about the existence of this king, or that report, or that he was in England. So there's a lot of historical material. Mm. But then they add the, the, the kind of speculative, miraculous uh, things, which is going to say, well, mm. they probably made up. Mm. But that's how they Here's another um, interesting, just another couple of interesting quotes about Muhammad, if we just pop back to him for a moment. Um, the, the earliest biographical sources for the life of Muhammad, which are known to us from quotations in later writings, uh, but they're supposedly quoting these earlier sources, and those sources date from over a hundred years after Muhammad's reported death. Um, and the Hadith were written at least 200 years after the supposed time of Muhammad. Mm-hmm. So, um, some sources that we don't have from maybe a hundred years after, and sources that we do have quoting those, and then sources from 200 years after, compare with what we have for Jesus, where we have sources from the first century, including sources from within 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, so we, we can be, we can be we're just agnostic about Buddha or Muhammad. Well, let's, uh, let's take them and I'm open to... Yeah, show me the evidence. And all the, the St. Olaf, well, let's just study. Christians don't have to believe all stories about miracles because we're Christians. We just examine critically what are the best evidence for miracles. So some may say, well, you just believe in miracles because you're Christian. No. <laughs> we we, we yeah. believe miracles are possible, but we still are very skeptical. Even Christians deceive, even, yeah, so there are many false miracles. 
and, and we, should be we should be critical. And even the critical examination of, of the resurrection really shows very strongly uh, this, this, this really happened. There is no al present alternative explanation, even. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the he had, he had a lecture on the christening of Norway, of, of uh, the myth of, of the violent Christianity and the, 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 the peaceful Vikings. That's kind of the story. Christianity was false on our people. Uh, well, there are some Viking Christian kings who continue to be violent, and Christianity has been used with violence, but the general approach of, of Christianization of Norway was not violence. That's very funny because that's not what we learned. Yes, exactly. And now yeah. th there is a textbook being being written before this summer, mm. and you need to get hold of it. Every Christian should get hold of it. It's Lucht uh, uh, Are you misled by your textbook, school textbook, mm -hmm. and pointing out all the the uh, the places, the materials which is skewed. Uh, both in terms of the Bible, about Jesus, of the influence of Christianity, and the, uh, Christian mission, and Christian to Norway. And it, it's very interesting as well because when the books present Islam, it's also about the about stress on peacefulness, contrib contribution. And when it's focused on Christianity, it's always focused on the problematic. It's, it's the violence, it's the force, it's the intolerance. Yeah. So there's not a balance. It's not a problem pointing out the Christian intolerance. But you should be balanced. All should be kind of critically evaluated and should have been balanced. So, so this book is going to be really, really very exciting. And on, on the Veritas as well, we will, we will, he will have a, a lecture. And we will create a video material for that book, for the for, for using Christian schools. Let's be honest, obviously, he's the main apologist mm -hmm. one of the best in Norway. <laughs>